0: What's up everybody in the building and shout out to everybody joining with us online. Uh, My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And before we get into today's message, I wanna pray for us. Uh, So Heavenly Father, Lord, you know all of the people that are listening and watching right now. You know where the type of week that we've had, you know the fears, the anxieties, the joys, everything going on in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would use this time to speak to your people, to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So today we are wrapping up our series on the well, and the whole concept behind the well is that we believe, properly understood, scripture is meant for us to be a source of life, not a source of anxiety and frustration that I'm not doing it well enough. That if you talk to enough people about reading scripture, you're liable to get uh, a variety of different responses, uh, ranging from being fulfilled to this uh, confusion, and I don't know how to do it well, and a lot of guilt that you're not doing it enough. But here's one of the biggest issues about making scripture for us a real source in our life. It's a question I've heard a thousand times as a pastor. It's a question I've asked myself a hundred times as a Christian. Can I actually trust the words? of scripture? Can you actually trust scripture so much that you wouldn't just listen to it, that you would come to church, but that you would actually build your entire life on it? Can the bridge of scripture bear your weight? Now, there's a couple of times in life where all of us start to ask ourselves these questions, can I trust scripture? I I think a couple of them that come to mind right now are when we hit major life milestones, So maybe once upon a time, it was cool for you to have your questions and your doubts and for them to remain unexamined and not to think about them, but you're in a new season of life where maybe you're about to have a child and it was okay to have your faith by yourself. But now as you're welcoming in this awesome privilege and this gift into your life, now you're starting to think, well, what am I going to pass down to them? Should I be passing down to them things that I've heard growing up? What did I not get growing up that they should be getting? And a lot of times when we hit major life milestones, we start to really wrestle and wonder, uh, what is it about faith that I should hold on to and pass down to this next generation? And certainly with scripture, is it is this something that is trustworthy that I should not just be believing myself, but should I give it to my kids? Another time in life when we start to really question whether or not scripture is um something that is reliable is when we are deepening our commitment to christ so i get this a lot when we're talking to people who are just filling out uh, a baptism questionnaire and they're about to take their faith public and as they are taking their faith public as they are deepening their commitment to christ not just individually but corporately and having some accountability to it they start to question and start to wonder man can i actually trust this stuff can I actually build my life on it? Should I actually build my life on it? I remember when I was going to seminary years ago and I was planning on leaving my job as an attorney, uh, the family firm, uh, much to the chagrin of my parents, my father at least, um, and leave to be a pastor and to start a church. And I started to think, man, like I'm gonna like, give away the family firm. I'm gonna like, completely do a 180 professionally Like, can I actually believe in this Bible? Should I spend the rest of my professional life, even though I still got student loans from law school, should I disregard all of that and put all of the weight on my life physically and professionally on scripture? When you hit times in life where you're starting to deepen your commitment to Christ, maybe once upon a time you came to New York just to have fun, just to get away from where you were, and now you find yourself at Renaissance and you're starting to ask real questions of faith. As you're deepening your commitment to Christ, you're probably starting to ask yourself, well, can I actually trust in the scripture? Other times, I think is a very natural point for you to question and for me to question, uh, can I trust in scripture? Is it reliable? Can I build my life on it? Is when faith in Christ and following Jesus makes life more difficult. Now, let me disabuse you of any notion. Anybody who has told you that following Jesus Will make your life easier and instantaneously better is, what's a nice way of saying this? (laughs) They're selling you snake oil. They're not after real growth in your soul and your life. The people who follow Jesus the most closely, as we'll see a little bit in scripture, man, they had to endure all types of persecution and hardship. And in Peter, it tells us anybody who wants to live a godly life will suffer persecution and hardship. So following Jesus is not going to make your life easier. It will make your life better in the long run, but maybe not immediately. And as you are watching your life become more difficult, it's natural to say, man, but can I actually trust in this scripture? One thing I think about is quite honestly with the way we spend our time and our money. When your time becomes less free and when your money becomes a little bit more funny because of following Jesus, it starts to raise questions inside of us. Well, can I actually trust in scripture. Should I actually be doing this now that it's making my life more inconvenient? Now, the last one is very true for me, where I start to wonder, can I believe in the words of scripture that say God is good, he's a good father, that he loves me, that he has good things planned for me? It's when suffering hits in my life. Now, here's what's true about me that might also be true about you. Uh, When suffering hits and difficulties hit in my life, sometimes my faith gets shaken when my dreams get shattered. That if you have a dream that you've been hoping for that is either deferred or denied, I start to really wonder, can I trust in God? Should I be putting all of my eggs in this one basket or should I save a couple and put them somewhere else as well? Although sometimes I feel like I knew everything, sometimes when life is hard, what I felt certain about, I'm not so certain about anymore. So no matter where you are, uh, if you're not at any of these places now, you certainly will find yourself at a spot in life where you start to wonder, can the weight, can the weight of my life, um, should I rest it on scripture? Can I build my life around scripture? Well, here's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. It's a short parable, uh, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, wherever you find yourself today, here's what Jesus is inviting us all into today. Every time you hear scripture, it's, I want you to always be thinking about it as this is an invitation from Jesus for me to get something. And here's Jesus's invitation to you and to me. His invitation to us are to hear the words of scripture and regardless how you feel about it, to put them into practice. And as you put them into practice, you will see how profoundly reliable And trustworthy they are. Now, as Jesus is telling this parable, he's putting together, he's giving us an image of two different builders. One person built their house on sand, another person built their house on a solid rock. And here's what is a a crazy concept that I was thinking about this morning. Now, in ancient Palestine, what Jesus was referring to in this parable were these like flash floods that come and they impact desert conditions uh, every couple of years. So, these two houses that Jesus talks about, the house built on sand and the house built on rock, they would have looked identical probably for years. There was no instantaneous negative thing that happened to the person who built their house on sand. Flash floods don't happen in a certain area every single year. It would take years and years and years. So if you were to go by that house every single day for years, you could look at both of those houses and say the person who did all, went to all of those lengths to build their house on rock For what? I mean, the other house looks great. It's still standing. But Jesus says, when the rains come and the winds blow, it collapses. And the test of the reliability of what Jesus is saying to us only comes after we have done what he told us to do. In other words, we can think about whether or not Scripture is reliable. We can reason in our brains whether or not we can trust in God and God's Word, but the certainty that we want only happens after commitment. You can reason yourself to probability, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. And now this is with anything. One of the questions that we get a lot is people who are dating and, should I date this person? Should I marry this person? And the answer is, well, you can reason yourself to probability, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. There's only but so much their Hinge profile will show you. There's only but so much you can learn on a couple of dates. There's only but so much you can learn about a person. But the only way you will learn the fullness of the decision that you have made is after you have committed. One of the things that I have uh, joked about, my wife and I got married pretty quickly. We got married like 10 months after we met. And um, I wouldn't recommend that to most people. But in our case... It worked out great. I mean, it's, it was a fantastic decision. And I'll never forget the morning we were getting married, and I was like, JL, buddy, what are we doing? It's not even a year, I mean, it's 10 months. We did the premarital counseling, and uh, she and I are both widowed, so we had been married before, so we know what to look for. Uh, but still, I mean, I was like, I had the normal jitters that any person has thinking, uh, this might not be the wisest decision. Now, eight and a half years later, that was the greatest decision I ever made. I can reason myself to probability, I can go to premarital counseling, I can ask friends, I can ask family, and they can get you a place of probably, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. This is, the same thing is true if you're hiring someone, if you're at a job and you hire people as part of your roles and responsibilities, um, you can read the resume, you can you know, call references and do mock whatever things at, at, at your, during the interview process. And you can get to a point where you say, well, this person is probably a good candidate to hire. But you will not know whether or not that person was a good hire until after commitment, after you have hired them, and then you will see that person in action, because you can reason yourself to probability and everything, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. Now, with respect to scripture, the same truth applies there as well. We're going to talk about some stuff today that I hope will get us all feeling good about the reasonability of trusting in the truthfulness and that scripture is a truly our solid rock that we can depend on. However, the certainty that you desire and crave is on the other side of commitment. The only way you will ever determine whether or not scripture is something that can carry you through every single storm in life is by building your house on it. And then you will see the truth, the trustworthiness of it. Now, a couple of quick disclaimers uh, up front. Uh, I, I grew up in a church in a tradition where you were not allowed to question anything. And so many people actually have been hurt really badly by the church because people had genuine questions and they were batted down and treated really with contempt just because you had questions about stuff. And first and foremost, I apologize if that's what you experienced. Uh, Jesus welcomes doubters. Jesus welcomes questions. After Jesus was resurrected, as a matter of fact, um, one of his disciples, a man named Thomas, really was struggling with doubt. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to believe. I know what y'all are telling me, that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to believe that. I really, truly do. However, I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands. Jesus, after he was resurrected, goes to the house and goes to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your hands, put your fingers through my side. Jesus restores Thomas. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't lecture him. Jesus welcomes people with doubt. So much so, there's a, power, there's a story, actually, an account of Jesus uh, going to, to heal someone's child. And Jesus is talking to the father, and the father says, Jesus, I, I believe that you can heal him. Um, and then Jesus says, well, everything is possible to the one who believes. And the father says to, this man, the father says to Jesus, a prayer that I've prayed 100 times in my life, I, I definitely believe Jesus, but please help my unbelief. A lot of you are there today and you will be there for the next number of months or years. And that's a prayer that Jesus honors. I believe Jesus, but there are areas of my life that is difficult for me to actually do that. So I want you to help me in my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. So another thing I wanna uh, highlight as a disclaimer, uh, we're not gonna be able today to answer all of the pressing questions that people have. However, a quick promo for our Renaissance app and our website, Uh, Tomorrow afternoon, probably late in the afternoon, we're going to have sermon notes from today's sermon. And in there, there are going to be a couple of resources that answer some questions that are very pressing. Uh, One of the questions that I get all the time is, well, how do I trust in the Bible that was used to promote and really keep slavery on the books for like hundreds of years in America? Like, how do I trust this? And this is what people use to condone slavery. we will be answering that question. There'll be a great resource on that. Um, and another one is like, man, when I read the Bible and I see all of this violence in the old Testament, like, well, how do I actually trust that this is a good thing? Or how do I trust in the God of this God of the Bible when there's so much confusing stuff in there and some other questions that people have. And I think they will be really helpful for you if you have those questions or if your friends have those questions, but I can't do all that today. What I will do today is hopefully push us to a place of probability. And then by God's grace, we're all going to take steps of faith to commit ourselves and put ourselves in a position where we'll find certainty. But that certainty that we want will come on the other side of commitment. So I mentioned I used to be a lawyer, and being um, a former attorney is good for a couple of reasons, but bad in a couple of other scenarios. Uh, Student loans, bad. Uh, Arguing with my wife, cross-examining her, definitely bad. Uh, But in settings where I feel like I'm trying to present a truth, I feel like it does give me A little bit of of help, so maybe those student loans are worth it after all. Um, If you're trying to determine the truthfulness of anything, right, here's three things you need to consider. Number one, the credibility of the witness. No matter what it is that someone is trying to tell you about anything in your life, if you want to know if you should believe something or do something, you have to first examine the credibility of the witness. Who are the people that is presenting this as true. Number two, you have to examine the integrity of the documents. Is what being presented as true and logical? Can it stand against criticism? Number three, you got to put it into practice and you have to test it. So number one, uh, the credibility of the of the witnesses. Now. In general, the biggest question in law, before you even get to any specific testimony about any specific thing that happened or didn't happen, is whether or not the witness is a person you should consider believing. Now, if you have a witness that is testifying something, testifying to something that is to their detriment, their believability goes up through the roof. So years ago, I was, Uh, I was, we had a lawsuit, Uh, uh, we represented a woman who broke her, who had her ribs broken in a car accident, and we were doing a deposition, and a deposition is something that you do before the trial, where you uh, examine witnesses, you have a stenographer taking notes, and I was asking the driver, the defendant of the, uh, the driver of the other car, the defendant, about what happened that day, and in all of my years practicing law, I've never heard testimony this honest and raw. I was expecting to get the runaround. So I asked the defendant, what happened that day when you were driving? She said, well, I was driving and I had to make a left-hand turn. I saw the light turn yellow and I sped up trying to catch the yellow light, but then it turned red and I hit the other car. And I was like, okay, great. So you hit my client. She was like, yeah, I ran a red light and I hit your client. I was like, all right, well, that's it. And the lawsuit effectively ended that day. I mean, really, uh, liability was determined that day. And here's the reason. We didn't need to search video cameras. Nobody in their right mind testifies to something against their interests unless it's true. Nobody makes up a story that harms them unless it is, in fact, a true statement. Now, in her case, she was opening herself up to a lot more liability. She was definitely going to be lose a lawsuit, her insurance is going to go through the roof, she was exposing herself to actual personal financial responsibility that her house could have been impacted because of this lawsuit that was happening against her. And the reason her words were so impactful to determine the truth, or the truth of that day was because she was testifying to something against her interest. Now let's think about the credibility of the people who were writing the fact that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now there's a lot of stuff that's confusing in scripture, there's a lot of stuff that you can get tripped up on, but here is the central fact of Christianity. You had a group of terrified apostles that went from hiding to being bold and out in the street saying, we saw Jesus rise from the dead. And they gave their life for it. Over and over and over again, for the next several decades of the church, they underwent immense amount of persecution because, not because they had, you know, they did soup kitchens or anything like that, not because they started orphanages. They were persecuted because they said, we saw the risen Jesus, and they believed it so much that they were willing to die for it. Now, who in here would die for a lie? I watch one of the, you know, these movies, and somebody's getting tortured. Here's the thing. Don't ever commit a crime with me, because if, if they start torturing people... I'm snitching. I'm like, yo, listen, yes. It was not, it was Lester. It was Lester. He is, make a left and you can find him down there. I'm not getting tortured. I, I'm not doing it. I might, I might undergo a little bit of torture and persecution if it's something that I really, really strongly believe in. And even then, I, I, listen, the jury is still out on me. I don't know how thorough I am, but I'm definitely not doing that for a lie. Like, who's going to give up your life for a lie? These people had families. I've mentioned this before, my, my biggest hope and my dream in my life is that I would be, that the Lord would give me the ability to see my sons grow from little boys to men, to see them be men of faith, men of God, with families, and I would not trade that for anything. I definitely would not put myself in a situation to die and give away my life and my dreams for a lie. For what? There were so many people around the time of Jesus that Uh, pretended to be the Messiah and then they died and their movement just was completely done in like days because nobody was going to die to uphold a lie. One of the main reasons that I personally trust in scripture is because of the credibility of the people who were were presenting it as true and these men uh, gave their life for it. So decades ago, uh, we've all heard of the Watergate scandal. uh, The one time a, a sitting president, was I guess about to be successfully impeached and then resigned, Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon, the president at the time was doing some corrupt stuff and he got caught and they called the scandal Watergate. And Richard Nixon and his, uh, his, some of his friends ended up going to jail and one of these men who went to jail for his crimes in Watergate was a man named Charles Colson. Charles Colson later actually became a Christian in prison and here's what he says about the resurrection. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful people in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles can keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The people that had everything to lose gave it away gladly for the sake of Christ because they fully believed it. They presented it to us, not because it was just their opinion, that it was a fact that they were willing to die for. So number one, the credibility of the witnesses through the roof. Number two, the integrity of the documents. Now, obviously you can't just stop at the credibility of the witnesses because just because they're credible people doesn't mean that their claim itself is credible or that the Bible that we have today is something that we can look at and hold with confidence that it's something that we can lean our lives on. So the second thing we have to do is examine the integrity of the documents. Now, the seminary I went to uh, was a very liberal seminary where most of my professors would not call themselves Christians. Most of my professors did not believe in the Bible. They did not go to church. Uh, they were people who engaged with scripture the same way I would read you know, um, ancient you know, Greek texts or something like that. And I'll remember one day sitting in my New Testament class and I was actually a little nervous because I kept on thinking that maybe they were gonna show me something about the Bible that was gonna make me not trust it either. And I'll never forget sitting in my New Testament class and just kind of just Bracing myself for the punch and all semester. I kept on thinking that they were going to say something that lowered my conviction in scripture and by the end of the semester, I was like, wait, wait wait, wait! These are the best arguments that you guys have against scripture Like where's some like where's the smoking gun? And for four years, I sat in a seminary where people who didn't believe the Bible PhDs, study had every uh, resource in their arsenal to disprove it really actually don't have strong arguments against it at all. In fact, the opposite is extremely true, that the Bible, more than any book, and it's not even close, has more original manuscripts. It's like 5,800 copies of the New Testament compared to like uh, 600 for the next uh, ancient book in, in, in history. And out of all of the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, there are quite literally zero doctrinal Differences. And by doctrinal, I mean if you have two different manuscripts, one of them will say, uh, you know, in the room there were Peter and the 12, the other one will say, in the room there was Matthew and the 12, or or there were the the 12. Now, in New Testament uh, textual criticism, they call these variants, a word that has very different meaning today. However, (laughs) in all of these variants, what you see is an astoundingly high similarity about the teachings the nature, the person, the character, the accounts of scripture of who Jesus is, his life, his teachings. And all of these variants emerged because the church was going through a lot of persecution. So you would have the church not gathered like you see today in modern 2022 New York City, where we have freedom of religion to practice church and Christianity at our discretion, at our disposal. What you would have are house churches full of people who are being persecuted. As they're being persecuted, one of them would get a letter from Peter. He would take that letter and he would copy it and manuscript it. And then they would pass that on to another house church who would do the same thing. So this is not like a game of telephone where you have one person whispering some silly truth. And then later, it's some crazy story later. I've heard that argument that, you know, the Bible is like a game of telephone. Um, Game of telephone is a game, a silly game where people say nonsensical statements and see what comes out on the other end. Let someone whisper something in your life, in your ear right now, that your life depends on it. And see how much you remember it. It's a much different thing. So in the Bible, you see an amazing amount of, uh, of things inside of the New Testament that make it a, a book that, just from a, a literary standpoint, is astoundingly trustworthy. A couple of other things. the Bible was written, many of the books were written during the lifetime of the people who would have seen these things. So there's a scripture in Mark 15, it says, they forced a man coming from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So the scripture writers included all of these people who presumably were alive and people knew them. These were not random stories that, that came out five, six, seven hundred years later. Much of the New Testament, many of the books were written within uh, the same generation as uh, the lifetime of the people who would have been experiencing it. So, as a result, if stuff was just completely made up, Simon of Cyrene would have been like, "Nah, I didn't, I didn't do that." Simon is my cousin. I know Simon. He didn't do that, right? So, these things were written during the lifetime of the of the people. Number two, uh, what the Bible does in so many different places is it includes so many counterproductive details. The biggest one is about the resurrection, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Women in all of the courts, whether in Greek or Jewish culture, lacked credibility credibility as witnesses, meaning they physically could not testify to the truth or false false nature of anything. And scripture says that the the people we should rely on are women. Why would you include that detail if it weren't true? Also, there's so many different things about Jesus and his humanity and him wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane and so many different concepts that you see. Uh, One of these other concepts is that the cross in and of itself was not something that people in that time would have looked to with any fondness in their heart. To die on the cross was presumed that you were a criminal. You were not a, a good person that should be followed. And people would have not made up these details if it were not true. Um... So the only plausible re- reason that all of these incidents would be included in the accounts of scripture are because they actually they actually happened. Now, there are so many facts about the, about the trustworthiness of Bible and we'll put some of them more in the, in the study notes. And no matter how many facts I give you, it might push you to a place of reasonableness. That you know what, it probably is, is true but you're gonna to have to commit yourself to certainty. But I wanna push one more thing that you know, all my spades players, this is my big joker. And uh, don't wait till the end of the game to play the big joker, play to win, play it when it's appropriate. The big joker, the main reason I trust in Jesus in scripture is because Jesus trusted scripture. So the number one reason I trust in scripture is not because I can understand and make my way intellectually to grapple with everything correctly but rather that Jesus really trusted scripture. And at every single turn in Jesus's life, he was quoting, reciting, memorizing, praying, teaching scripture. From Genesis to Malachi, Jesus bathed and lived in scripture so much so that at the worst moments of his life, what, when Jesus was squeezed with life, what came out of him, what oozed out of him was scripture. And that was because scripture was inside of him. You know, my... Um, my sister-in-law, is uh, it's funny because I knew her. She was my, one of my best friends when we were in high school, and I introduced her to my brother. Um, and uh, growing up, she was from the South Bronx, and she was not the one you mess with. Let's just say it like that. But now she's a soccer mom. She drives her kids to practice. And every now and then, I'm like, yo, your kids, especially my, my tween-age niece, they don't know about BX Jazzy. They know about like soccer mom, is dinner ready yet, Jasmine. They don't know about the real BX Jasmine. But every now and then, something will happen, and I see the Bronx coming out of her. And I have to tell my niece, listen, you might want to slow down a little bit on the way you're talking to your mother, because she might cut you. She really might. I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. What comes out of her is what was in her, the Bronx. In Jesus' most difficult moments, what came out of him was scripture. In Jesus' most joyous moment, moments, what came out of him was scripture. In Jesus' mundane moments, what came out of him was scripture. Jesus says this in uh, Matthew 5. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So, we can reason ourselves to probability, but you're gonna to have to commit yourself to certainty. Now, here's what I learned over the years in my own life. Now, there will be times in life when the most inconvenient part about Christianity is this, we walk by faith and not by sight. Like that's the worst part about Christianity. It has nothing to do with the sexual ethics, financial stuff. The worst part about Christianity is that you have to walk by faith and not by sight, which means that inevitably there will be Many moments where there is a gap in your life between what God is calling you to do and what you can be certain about. And Jesus invites us all to obedience, to trust in him, and to step over that gap. And here's the thing. As we take steps of faith and obedience and putting our faith in Jesus, putting our faith in scripture, building our life on it, we will see that it is trustworthy. That when the storms of life come, and the rains blow, blow, our house did not fall down. But a lot of us can be in a place of analysis paralysis where we never put things into practice in our life because we're just waiting for more certainty and you can reason yourself the probability, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. You know, one of the things that a scripture I've been reading through the last couple of months is uh, Galatians 6 and 9. And as life goes and it's ups and it's downs, and as sometimes life just feels exhausting, I'm holding on to a promise in scripture that says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. And I'm holding on and trusting, Lord, I'm just gonna do the right thing. I'm just gonna do good. I'm gonna forgive when I'm called to forgive, even though I don't feel like forgiving right now. And I'm gonna build my life on your words and trust that they're trustworthy and know that on the other end, I will find the certainty after my commitment. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a promise from scripture over your life that you've been hesitating to put into practice, and I want you to put it into practice. You might not find an immediate resolution for your issue. You might not find how trustworthy it is until five years from now, but I want you to put it into practice. Here's why. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man or a foolish woman who built their house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, it collapsed with a great crash. So may we take Jesus' words, May we take the words of Scripture, may we test them by leaning our lives on them. And by God's grace, we will find how much of a true foundation they are. Amen and amen. Now, we don't do this often at Renaissance. Uh, I want us to do something called a responsive prayer. And we used to do this, we used to do responsive readings every Sunday at Shiloh Baptist Church growing up. And we don't do these often now, but. A responsive prayer is a a prayer that we all say together as a congregation, so if you're able to stand, I would invite you to stand, and there will be words bolded on the screen that I want you to read uh, in unison with me. Uh, These words come as an adaptation from Psalm 119, and this is our prayer for us to pray. God, help me seek you with all of my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. Convince my heart and help me to treasure your word so that I may not sin against you. Lord, may you be blessed by my learning and knowledge. With my lips, I proclaim your promises, your character, and your holiness. I want the world to know your way is best. Help me be consistent in meditating on scripture so that I will not forget your words. Lord. When I feel like you're not there, when I don't believe or I'm not inspired to study the scriptures, remind me of its daily benefits. Your word is always with me. It gives me wisdom and insights. It strengthens my resolve in hard times. Lord, may your words be the guardrails that keep me from danger. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Because I know you more now through your word, I've also learned how I'm supposed to live my life for you. Thank you for your grace and provision as you help me to not lose hope when I face dark days. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. May it penetrate my heart and shape my life. Amen and amen.